The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They are sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here's your host, Jacob Jensen. Good morning and welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today we have a really exciting show. Uh, today's show is called The Five Pieces to the Puzzle of Addiction with guest intervention specialist Ed Storty. Uh, but first and foremost, today is six months of being on the air for me, and I just got to thank all of my listeners uh, for making it a really great show. My numbers are going up on a monthly basis at a very nice clip, and today uh, we were actually tweeted to 3.4 million people, so I want to thank anonymously the person that did that for me. So in today's show, you know, the question that keeps coming up is, is addiction a disease? And I even uh, have worked with people, know people in recovery that still question if it was a disease. And usually those are people who haven't been through uh, treatment or the health system. So the the American Society of Addiction Medicine uh, says this about addiction. Addiction is primary which means it's not caused by something else. It's a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, sociological, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in an individual pathology pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. So it's this idea that a person uses a substance to feel normal uh, regardless of that the adverse consequences that may come with it. So addiction is characterized by an inability to consistently abstain, impairment in behavioral control, craving, diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behavior and interpersonal relationships, and a dysfunctional emotional response. Like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. Without treatment or engagement in recovery activities, addiction is progressive and it can result in disability or premature death. So just like any other disease, if we don't take care of this, it can continue to get worse and maybe cause death. So Dr. Michael Miller, who I've had on the show uh, in the past, was the past president of ASAM, said this, At its core, addiction isn't just a social problem or a moral problem 
or a criminal problem. It's a brain problem whose behaviors manifest in all these other areas. Many behaviors driven by addiction are real problems and sometimes criminal acts. But the disease is about brains, not drugs. It's about underlying neurology, not outward actions. So today on I Took the High Road, we're going to discuss some of those underlying neurology um, that may lead to addiction if not treated appropriately. So naysayers, you know, that believe addiction is a choice and that the brain is changed from you. So instead of being changed already uh, and then using the drugs and alcohol, which, you know, now continue to change it more, this is what I have to say to them. Diacetyl morphine, which is stronger than heroin, they give it to grandmas and grandpas all over the country having surgery, and most don't become junkies. So is it so hard to believe that your brain might be different from somebody else's? Maybe these character traits that we can look at might lead people into addiction, that difference in the brain. So maybe we call it a difference in the brain instead of a disease, and that's where we start breaking the stigma of addiction. So today's guest, I want to introduce him. His name is Ed Storty. He's an author, a lecturer, and intervention specialist. He is an international and California certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor and a board-registered interventionist. He has choreographed over 3,600 motivational interviews throughout the world, or interventions throughout the world, excuse me. He is the author of Crisis Intervention, Acting Against Addiction, and Heart to Heart, The Honorable Approach to Motivational Intervention. Ed is also a contributing author of the book, Addiction Recovery Tools. Ed is a member of the National Association of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors, the California Association of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors, and the Association of Intervention Specialists. He is on the board of directors for the House of Hope Foundation. In San Pedro in 2009, he won the Spirit Award from the Good and Center. And in 2011, he won the Pillar of Community Recognition Award from Sierra Tucson Treatment Center in Arizona. Uh, Mr. Ed Storty, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Good morning. Jake, great to be here. And congratulations on six months. I think that's terrific. Just wonderful. Thank you. You know, it's a it's a lot of work to get here, and you kind of wonder if you'll ever make it that far. And I really hope to continue uh, for for a lot longer. So, good for you. I think it's great for all of us to be a part of uh, be a, be a part of the show. Thank you. It's uh, it's an honor to have you. You are certainly uh, one of the pioneers in the field, and certainly somebody that I respect. So, thank you. Uh, so. We talk about addiction as a disease. Why do you think some people still believe addiction is not a disease? You know, it's interesting. I mean, um, I do this presentation on the disease of appetite, and often I say uh, so many folks uh, will look at themselves and say, if I can plug the jug, why can't you? If I can, if I can take a sliver of pie, why can't you? If I can just play one slot machine and you continue to gamble, why can't you do what I do? And, you know, um, uh, I look at it as, you know, the appetite mechanism in the human being, day one, can be different, that Mm -hmm. there's just no choice, that uh, you are a host of the illness. And, of course, what, what is added to that is the sensory perceptions in that individual can be different than that person that is either well-adjusted or sees life differently. Uh, and our need for relief can be different day one. You know, uh, uh, a mom will say, my, my child was very colicky or always had to hold on to me or uh, 
we always had to go to school with them. They just had this clinging process in them, and it follows in life. And, of course, then it can be through experiencing of a drug that uh, then one takes that drug and finds relief. Uh, and so that's the power. I mean, people will look at folks and say, well, why do you have to do it that way? And again, I have to say, well, they can certainly be the host of the illness. And I, what I did, I put together five pieces to the puzzle of addiction and um, communicating with, with clients slash patients, family members, and treatment programs and trying to decipher in some way an explanation of if this, if this illness is describable and it's predictable and it is progressive, then what are some of the pieces to the puzzle? And so it's just been through my field research that I came up with a few of these um, uh, pieces to the puzzle, you know, something that I could at least present to the patients that would be saying, um, I still don't think it's a disease. And so I'd, I'd, uh, I'd start to uh, lean towards, well, let me explain it to you. Sure. You know, it's, it's that um, the change in that belief comes from the, the need for it to change, you know, uh, and, and through your intervention process and deal, you, how many interventions have you done currently? Uh, 3,600. And then at that level, I mean, I was, I've been active and intervening for about uh, 36 years. Uh, continuously going, 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 and, and going into homes and and uh, different uh, countries and what, and intervening on the patient to motivate them. And I always felt that interesting that you have to go in to motivate a person to save their life uh, based off of that their illness is so profound that they can't make a healthy decision for themselves. Sure. You, this, you know, change is coming uh, in in the recovery field uh, quite quickly. How long ago did you start to recognize these, you know, five pieces to the puzzle of addiction? How long have you been working on these? Uh, good point. It's been over probably about thirty years of really listening and trying to find the similarities of the active. Uh, client that you work with that one will uh, present, here's what I'm experiencing, and families then uh, stating the same thing. Uh, let me give you one piece, if I may. Um, sure. One is, and again, this is prior to the first jolt of taking something, that that patient can, can experience a higher appetite level period, meaning when they go to test uh, an experiment with with a drug that that they find that their tolerance soars over a period of time for some people, my youngest patient thirteen my oldest ninety four but that is an insatiable appetite, and that insatiable appetite is within that human being that they 'll lie over the drug they 'll be in the wrong places over it, uh, they will be with the wrong people and so what we what we notice is a hypersensitivity. Uh, to ingesting alcohol or a drug. And with that, what we know is one has to experience total abstention or it will, in, it will dictate one's lifestyle period. I think Dr. Silkworth said it beautifully. It's an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. Mm-hmm. But, but when I simplify it for patients uh, doing my talks out there, I'll say, you know, you have a thermometer and that thermometer could have been fractured day one. It's just a matter of trying to, you know, 
evaluate or come to an, uh, an epiphany of understanding that when you take one of anything, you want more. And I see that as um, an enough button. Human beings have an enough button. And that enough button, you press it, and, and it works for people. And uh, yet with the addictive person, we press that button, and it's never enough. It doesn't it's, engage. It's yeah, that it's, clear. It's Very uh, clear. You know, in NA and AA, they say, you know, one is too many, a thousand's never enough. Um, and I've heard people say, you know, that's really the idea behind something's addictive. It's not going to be addictive if you don't like it. Uh, and the individual that I heard speak got up on stage and said, you know what, I started dating girls at 14 and guess what I liked it I never looked back you know something that somebody can can relate to that you know if why are we going to take that risk of setting off some of these underlying factors which may cause huge problems down the line uh, assuming that we enjoy it exactly and and the point here to be made is that is the (laughs) physicality of the illness that's the physical part that's the part that people will look at a human being and say, well, if I uh, don't require uh, the medications or the drug or the drink, uh, why do you? But that physical piece is once you have it, you have it for life. That's mm-hmm. it. And what we know is total abstention of all mood-altering drugs. And, uh, and uh, again, uh, you can't try to, uh, you know, build towards it continuously if that component is not there. It's got mm-hmm. to be there for it to happen. So let's get into some of the five pieces of, to the puzzle of addiction. You talked uh, about one on that, that turned-up mm-hmm. appetite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other would be um, the amplifier. So we've, we've kind of talked about the higher appetite level, which is the physical part. Let's talk a little bit about the emotional end of it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we, we, we will underline that with the disease of emotions, because that is the Achilles tendon of the illness. The emotions really drive us, and these emotions are there prior to the use of a drug. And so, again, these pieces to the puzzle are around prior to your first jolt. Mm-hmm. A lot of indicator is that there's a very good chance once you start to experiment, you'll want the drug for relief. But this turned-up amplifier is the psychological piece, the disturbance within the thinking, and that's again, what we call the mental twist or the toxicity of our thinking. And, um, so, you know, as I explain it, uh, as I look at it, it's, it's the sensory perceptions. It's, it's the acute perceptions of life where we continually at times will look for the negative and not the positive, and we just can't keep it simple. We start to become a drama king or a drama queen. And we just get our attention by negative involvement or, you know, emotional hangovers are terrible to experience. I mean, people don't sleep at nights. They'll be fretting over issues. I was, um, you know, I was in some way hurt over my feelings of what he said, she said. I didn't say it. Uh, the way I wanted to, and it just drives you to a point of beating up on self. And that's that turned-up amplifier. We see things differently. 
It's it's very interesting that you know yeah as with the turned up amplifier as you start to get further and further into the addiction you see things more and more negatively but yet the use continues because of the euphoria when you're using your thought patterns don't go back to the negatives of the use they do go back to the positives and that thought of this was a fun process for me so I want to keep doing it in early recovery yeah, that's hard to break. It's interesting because, you know, we overthink the project and often, you know, in, in, in what we'll see in some of these rooms here in our 12-step rooms, we'll see, you know, think, 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 and it's overthinking, overthinking. Uh, but there was a study done on uh, the human being about uh, the, the human being approximately experiences 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day. 60 well. to 70,000 thoughts. I mean, you don't realize when you have the thoughts because you can be driving and you have hundreds of thoughts just in a, in a short drive. Uh, but the point was being made that it seems like the addictive person tends to lean towards negative thoughts versus positive thoughts. And that's mm-hmm. the virus that one carries. That'll start to be pessimistic, negative, and around a poor me. And that takes uh, you know a lot of work to start changing those thought patterns and behavior patterns through co- cognitive behavioral th- therapy, getting those uh, ideas changed from something maybe more negative to something more positive. And that's certainly something that I do as a recovery coach is help people start change that negative thinking to if you're focused on the past and what caused the problems, instead of fixing them, you're never going to move forward with your life. Uh, so it's really about helping that person understand Understand that thinking about the past and how it started is not positive. But if we put that energy into how we can fix our life today and tomorrow, it's going to be a lot better. And on that note, we have to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors. But when we come back, more with intervention specialist Ed Storty. Your life, your health your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin. 
and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today's show is The Five Pieces to the Puzzle of Addiction with guest intervention specialist Ed Storty. Before the break, we covered the first two pieces to the puzzle of addiction, which were the higher app than normal appetite level uh, and the turned up amplifier. So coming back in, um, Ed, what is the third piece to the puzzle of addiction right now? Well, the third piece, as I see it, is, and I kind of uh, um, marked it as such, is someone pushed your kill switch years ago. And where, where that came from is that when I would talk to folks over the years, uh, many would say that they've never been comfortable in their skin. They feel lonely within, very different. And um, as I would further talk to them, uh, many would, would talk about that when they were very young, four to eight years of age, somewhere along that line, they recorded a message that they're not worthy of, and that it could have come from a parent, it could have come from an elementary school teacher, could have come from a coach, um, some supposed mentor, uh, that you're not good enough and you're going to deserve all the pain you receive later in life. Now, with some people, they would shrug it off. But with many addictive folk, highly sensitive, that they would record it, and they don't feel good within themselves. And, you know, it comes across when you're talking to folks that um, it's very clear in relapse that one sabotages their success. They tend to sabotage it. They attract to negative excitement. In other words, mm-hmm. living within the double-edged sword of maybe I can make it, maybe I won't. But, you know, you alluded to something um, uh, prior to the break, and that is that, you know, you catch that virus and you have to help people to uh, hopefully gain an antibiotic to, to deal with that virus. But that virus can be carried for years and years and years, and it's almost self-hypnotic that I'm not worthy. And, um, you know, uh, you attain a goal, you attain a trophy, and that trophy can be a business trophy you're very proud of, or it certainly can be one of a relationship that you love, you, you, you want uh, recognition, uh, is another, 
and then you find a way to punish yourself. Because, see, here we go. There's another button, and that button is an enough button also. Now, this one works, and that's the not good enough button. Now, when you press that one, it engages. And so now one has a suffering ethic. Some people have work ethics. They're great at work. They will go to the assembly line for 52 years and do wonders. We have a suffering ethic, and that's something that our, you know, our 12-step programs, therapists, coaches, people help so that you can get past the connection and the attraction to, to suffering. That's really interesting. I never would have thought the kill switch would lead uh, to to where you went with it. And you talk about you being a sensitive addict. I was certainly that in the ages of four to eight. And I think back uh, to grade school. And one thing that really sticks out in my mind is I was a good student, but I held my pencil and pen differently, just like my father did. And my teacher scolded me for that and sent me down to the principal and told me I'm doing it wrong, called in my parents. Um, and that really stuck in my head as, as something, you know, uh, that, that I was thought I was doing right and was told that I wasn't kind of scolded, like you said. The other thing, I remember getting glasses in third grade and really trying to get recognition and fit in that acceptance uh, through that. So, Everything that you're talking about, of the, the killing that kill switch, um, I can certainly relate to. Uh, and the other point that you touched on was about creating that positiveness in your life that in recovery we tend to uh, create or surround ourselves with that negativity or bad thoughts. Uh, I just recently posted something on feedback loops, uh, positive brain feedback loops, and how we are really responsible for creating our destiny. We can choose where we go. We can choose to move ourselves through uh, different stages in life if we choose to. We can kind of set our destiny even though we don't realize it. Absolutely. So. You know, it's just, uh, it's one that actually, you know, uh, when you're working with folk, uh, people in groups and as you do and, and continuously out there, uh, the similarities are amazing. Uh, people will shake their heads forward going, you're right, that's how I punish myself, how I, how I harm myself. Um, you know, it's one of, uh, 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 of people that will often talk about, you know, maybe uh, there are folks that track to the self-harming of cutting and gouging and pulling of hair. Uh, then folks will say, well, what I do is harm myself through negative thoughts and emotional hangovers and beating up on myself where I'm just not happy and I don't know why. And that's where, uh, as you go back early in life, uh, how powerful, uh, you know, our neurons are that, I mean, one can just record a message, a slight message, and we interpret it in a way of self-punishment. It's kind of like uh, the the... Wayne's World punishment. We're not worthy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. not worthy yeah. uh, to to deal with this, and and in turn, uh, we engage maybe in that bad behavior, thinking that's what we deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, that kill kill switch. Did, does that have anything to do uh, with risky behavior, like that risk taking? That that idea that people might go out and uh, you can certainly have negative risky behavior, but you could have positive risky behavior too. Do we do we see that? that risk is as a characteristic in stopping that kill switch? 
You know, that's a good point. It, it, excellent point, because I've had uh, pe- uh, 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 guys come up to me and say to me, you know, um, when I'm pumping iron and I'm bench pressing 300 pounds, I think of that coach at times telling me I couldn't do it, and now I can do it. Or when the person said I wasn't athletic enough and I ran my marathon, uh, I put that to rest, and now I feel much better about myself. So I think you you have a point. I mean, I think that some of these things turned around in a positive manner can really create for us a great lifestyle, too. Sure, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it can. It, you keep building towards wanting to find out more, not only psychologically, but spiritually about self. Yeah, you know, it was a, I constantly think back to a picture of me when I was about four or five years old, and I had this um, big wheels, and I rode it as fast as I could towards a sand pile with a ramp and did a launching leap, and they took a picture of me about six feet flying through the air, you know, and I was always this little daredevil growing up, and in turn, you know, I became a hedge fund manager, you know, very risky, uh, you know, you have to can't be ver- risk averse if you're a hedge fund manager. Uh, so it kind of really led me to that risky behavior. Uh, but now it's given me those tools to say, I want to create a business. I want to create a radio show. I want to take the risk and you know step out on that limb and try and do something positive with it. So Exactly. And uh, it's kind of interesting that once you get healthy, uh, you don't want to lean towards sabotaging self within a, a, a painful structure. You know, you're careful with it. Uh, but, you know, what you're talking about, too, is I think that's what entrepreneurs are all about. I mean, they can take something and risk in a healthy way and know when to draw back. Yeah, the the most successful people in the world are the people that figure out how to take that negative character trait and turn it into something positive. Yes, you know, absolutely. And, and as a strength. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, when we think of the then the three pieces to the puzzle, there there is the fourth, mm-hmm. and that fourth is uh, kind of complementing what we've talked about. Uh, you know, in, in, in a few uh, of the past, but it's a higher need for relief. It just seems that one could start off in life prior to taking a drug having a need for relief. And, you know, we often, as I've talked about, um, say it's a disease of emotion, and, and we also say it's defined by emotional immaturity. A lot of emotional immaturity. And Dr. Tebow, uh uh, let me see, from 1896 to 1966, I mean, he was very well known. And he said, you know, in his writings, immaturity was the major stumbling block to recovery. Powerful. We, we, we seem to be in a country in need of, of a higher need for relief so as, as a whole. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's there. Uh, you know, in the in, in the sense of uh, sold to you through commercials um, yeah. continuously, you don't have to feel this, you don't have to feel that, mm-hmm. and that's where I've often said that people innocently get addicted, just in, in the sense of messages. Go ask your physician uh, in reference to this medication, to this one here. You shouldn't have to uh, experience experience any type of legitimate pain. There's legitimate mm-hmm. pain out there. We all go through it. There's speed bumps out there. We are to mature through them. 
but we're told, well, you don't have to if you don't want to. We certainly seem to be a culture of take a pill to fix your problems and uh, certainly a reactive society instead of a proactive society in terms of addiction and recovery. Uh, so we, we certainly need to change that through different uh, presentations just like this. So Yes. Yeah, it's... Um you know, it's kind of, uh, it, what I found is people will often talk about um, that their emotional growth has been stunted. And emotionally being stunted, that to then take on um, normal, legitimate issues that we mature through, that the individual with stunted emotional growth takes it on as how dare they uh, make me go through this? I don't want to do it. And that follows a person continuously. And yeah. that's something we all work on. I mean, why do I have to go do this? And, and there's defiance uh, behind that. I mean, look at, look at people that, in reference to uh, over and over and over, the message is, I can't use the drug. If I take ones of this, I want threes, fours, six of that. Mm-hmm. And yet, over and over, the defiance is, I, that's not fair. I still want to do what I want to do. Sure. Uh, when we, you know, you mentioned you touched on uh, the stunted emotional growth, and, mm-hmm. and there's a way that I explain this to a lot of parents that stopped or stunted emotional growth. It, it's if you think of yourself walking along a path and you're learning your life skills and learning how to deal with all of these situations that are arising, and then all of a sudden you take a substance, so now your path splits off where you would have been, and now this new way. So now you're starting to learn to live life with this very effective coping mechanisms, you know, alcohol or drug, or at least what they perceive as an effective coping mechanism. Now when you stop using, it's not that your emotional growth hasn't stopped. It still continues, but it just continues along a different path. So when you stop using drugs, it really sends you back to that point prior using, which you may have lost some and now takes a little bit more time to to regain again. That's kind of the way that I explain it to parents. It's not absolutely. A and of course, slow. what's hard to 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 have people understand cuz they don't know, you know, they, you don't know what you don't know, and that is as you break through in what you just presented, you can go to a benchmark of maturity that you never thought you could ever go to. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. to catapult to a level of understanding, peace of mind, and to really follow passion within a career and enjoy life and not endure it, to live yeah, but- it, not endure it. That seems to you know be one of the uh, the 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 shining rays of hope that when I work with uh, addicted individuals, especially opiate addicts, they're some of the you know most driven, intelligent, caring people that you've ever met that have gotten pulled into this addiction. Now it's just about helping them uh, figure out that way out, and then if they use half of that energy that they use towards maintaining their high towards something positive, they become very very successful people. Uh, it's that drive just has to be uh, pushed towards something a little bit more positive. Exactly. I mean, that's where years ago through employee assistance programs um, in the 60s, 70s, they start really uh, looking into that if they could uh, invest in the employee and get them onto a roadmap of good health, they'd be one dedicated employee. Mm Mm-hmm. We need to be more proactive with mm-hmm. with a lot of things that we do. Absolutely. Uh, when when we come back, I want to come back to that higher need for relief. 
there's this, you know, this anxiousness that a lot of people have sometimes in recovery. Maybe they put in a hard day's work and they go home and feel like they are still uncomfortable and need this substance. Is, is that kind of what you're speaking to for that higher need of relief also? This constant feeling that normalcy maybe isn't right all the time? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's a thing that if you don't have, um, you know, the tools to be able to offset uh, what's going on within the person, then they're looking, you know, through the negativity and through all the uh, pain that they see out there, they start looking for, I need relief and to feel comfortable in some way, even if it's short-lived. Yeah, I remember, you know, in my later high school years, you know, I was a scholar athlete. I did very well in school. I was in a lot of extracurricular activities, but I had this belief that sobriety sucked. You know, it was this constant feeling like sobriety sucked. I was constantly bored. I constantly wanted to engage and try new things and take that next step and uh, figure out what else was out there. So, Yeah, it's um, actually uh, well said because I've often said, you know, uh, we experience uh, in recovery a melting down theory. And as you melt down, as you start to melt down to full recovery where you're really comfortable and exactly where that's at for a human being, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But people will say, you know, that I'm feeling very comfortable with myself today. But when you melt down, you will get mind attacks. Sometimes we call them alcoholism attacks. But these attacks will hit you. And the old thinking, the old need for relief comes comes back. And that's the power. The power is then have the tools to offset it. And on that note, we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors. But when we come back, uh, more of the five pieces to the puzzle of addiction with guest intervention specialist Ed Storty. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school We're using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. 
I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today's exciting show is The Five Pieces to the Puzzle of Addiction with guest intervention specialist Ed Storty. Uh, so the five pieces to the puzzle of addiction, we talked with the, the about the first three in the first two segments, the higher than normal appetite level, the turned up amplifier, the idea that somebody pushed your kill switch years ago. Um, and just before the break, we were talking about the higher need for relief. So Ed, is there any way to offset this higher need for relief if, if somebody feels like this is an issue they may be having? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, again, we talk about that hypersensitivity, um, not only in ingesting a drug, but the need for relief in our thinking and we're we're sensitive on not only the physical but the psychological level and um you know when i think about it um i think when we can um look at our perceptions uh we have perceptions that are immediate and uh you know you'll get the patient that will present my gut told me not to go to this place at midnight and be with the guys or the gals. Uh, but I went anyway because I thought everything would be okay. But that GPS system within usually will tell you back off, and it's a perception. And so I think what, um, you know, our 12-step programs and our counseling and what treatment often will uh, keep uh, uh, presenting to an individual is learn to pause Learn to pause your thinking. Be careful with it. You know, 30 seconds in a decision, just 30 seconds in a decision can certainly lead to 30 days of regret or 30 years of remorse. Sure. And, 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 and that's powerful. You know, Jake, I, you know, in my own life, there's times I've often thought, I wish I would have just paused and said, I'll get back to you later. You know, that's, it's always been hard for me. It's like it's an immediate response I must come up with or I didn't come through. But that's the part of wanting relief to immediately get rid of something yeah. that's going on with you and then afterwards going, I should have really done more due diligence around it. Sure, which really speaks to the disease of control that, you know, we, we want everything to happen our way and we want to please everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that 
tends to sab- create sabotage, you know, sometimes in our life, self-sabotization, uh, yeah. I guess. And, you know, one of the, the ways that they really teach people how to break that in early treatment is to not listen to yourself, to go to that higher power, yeah. uh, whether it's a group conscience and the other people mm-hmm. in there, the counselors, you know, whatever you can attach to, yeah. but just don't listen to your own thinking yeah. uh, in early recovery because it's damaged. It's, it's not working, right? Yeah, well, when in doubt, go to your sponsor. You know, yes, when in yeah. doubt, I mean, call someone for what would what's their, you know, mentors. I mean, there's some wonderful uh, coaches and people that can be mentors to say, you know, before I make that decision, I need to check it out. There was a gentleman that I, I worked with years ago, and, and so he was in his fourth treatment. He had to be approved for the fourth treatment. So I said, well, let me ask you, that when you go and you start drinking and using other drugs, um, do you ever think of the consequences based off of the three treatments? He goes, no, no, I just want it and I do it. I said, mm-hmm. so you never think of the ramifications of it? No, I don't. I said, okay. Uh, I said, do you, you've been in long enough in these programs. Have you ever gone to a 12-step program and you have a sponsor? He goes, yeah. He says, my sponsor's a great guy. I love him. <laughs> And I said, well, do you ever call him before you start the relapse? He goes, no, he might talk me out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that self-sabotization. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's just this thing of uh, pausing. And that's, a, boy, I'll tell you, it's, uh, that's a big one because, uh, uh, you know, folks can be so impulsive, you know, mm-hmm. in just taking something or um, uh, uh, uh intoxication of thoughts. That's another mm-hmm. one, you know, that thought addiction is powerful. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get into a thought that you shouldn't get into. And all of a sudden you're now in it and you can't let go of it. And you, you, you miss sleep over it. And you now have built it way out of proportion. One of the best ways that I felt to deal with that is you know, talk to that support structure. You know, just like mm-hmm. you said, a sponsor, a mm-hmm. coach, a therapist, mm-hmm. a trusted family member. Uh, talk through some of those issues, talk through some of those things to people you respect and you know, you'll come away from it feeling uh if nothing else, a little bit more relieved that you've gotten it off your chest. Exactly. Gosh yes. Well, you know, another piece, the uh, kind of the final piece to the puzzle yeah, the, the last again, piece. what we have talked about is uh, you know, four pieces to the puzzle that prior to a use, this can be going on in you, already set up as a host of the illness. But another one, and people forget about it, is the genetics of the illness. And that mm-hmm. simply is, is that, uh, you know, in, uh, in uh, audiences that I work with, I'll ask, raise your hand if you have a family member that's addictive. And, I, and I'll, uh, usually it's 90% of a, of a group that will raise their hand. And um, with that alone, one can be a sitting duck for the uh, illness. Uh, we often say that uh, the risk is 50, 60% as, as high as that in inheriting the illness. And uh, people will accept that with diabetes, heart disease, um, geez, you name it. I mean, from acute colitis to going on and on within family members, within the bloodline. But when you talk addiction, uh, the individual will say, well, my dad has a problem or mom or grandfather did, but I'm not like them. Mm-hmm. And so it can 
dictate the destiny where uh, the remaining percent is environmental then, um, not only as a genetics, but environmentally where you're introduced to drugs very young. And at, at some well, one sports athlete said to me years ago, well, if I would have known a puff off the pipe would have destroyed my marriage and my career, I would have never done it, but I've been trying to chase it ever since. Mm-hmm. That, that reactive society instead yeah. of proactive. Uh, yeah. How does society or environment you know, affect these pieces or contribute as a catalyst for addiction? So we have these underlying traits, these five pieces. Mm-hmm. How does society really contribute to pushing somebody towards addiction? I think that it's sold pleasurable. And, um, you know, it's one that it, uh, uh, you know, uh, the scene is to be happy, to be free, and that it's pleasurable, it's attractive, and that's how you meet people, and that's how you uh, gain uh, a uh, connection with people, and it's just out there. I mean, how many folks would attend football games with no alcohol? How many would attend uh, theaters with no alcohol or whatever beverage in the lobby? You know, it, it really is pushed. I mean, and it has been, Jake, you know, I do a, th- a talk on the history of addiction. It goes back 5,000 years. It's in the book, Slaying the Dragon by William White. And it mm-hmm. goes yes. back 5,000 years of problems with uh, people mad from drinking. You know, it, when uh, Wisconsin went to the Rose Bowl quite a few years back, we drank mm. the Florida Stadium out of alcohol. Oh. Uh, Wisconsin <laughs> just loves to drink. We're one of the only states, uh, we are the only state in the country where you can bring your underage child into a beer with an adult and drink with them. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> I, was we at, have, I, was, I was at actually a Hawaii game uh, in uh, Las Vegas, and Las Vegas, Nevada was a uh, playing Hawaii, it was years ago, and I remember, it's a steep stadium when you go uh, up, you know, into, yeah. the, uh, into the stadium, and uh, there's no railings, and you go up, and a woman was coming up these concrete steps, I mean, wiped <laughs> out, and I'm thinking, one step backwards, and she'll be on the stadium floor, and I thought, oh my gosh, what people do. Gee whiz, how dangerous yeah. uh, this could be. And, uh, you know, just folks under the influence. It's, you know, when, when we see, when we look at the views of society, there seems to be two views. Media uh, seems to, you know, certainly TV and movies seem to sometimes glamorize the use, but then you have the other side, the judicial side that really punishes it. And it seems to be very black and white. There's really no middle ground. Uh, you know, maybe we need to get there to start understanding some of these things and start treating it like a disease instead of a, a black or white choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the movies, you know, when you really look at it, I mean, eon years ago, um, even when you look at 1901, 1902, uh, there start to be, uh, you know, uh, black and white, uh, very simple movies on opium den and things of that nature, but Man with a Golden Arm, I believe in 1955, Frank Sinatra won an Oscar on that, and that was on heroin addiction, and uh, very powerful that uh, government didn't really want it out, fear of what people would do. Uh, but the, the days of wine and roses in 60, I think 62, somewhere in there, 
uh, Jack Lemmon and, and Lee Remick about, you know, the simplicity of just trying a drink. And then from there, both became alcoholic, host of the illness. Mm-hmm. And just all these things that uh, the young people will relate to spun, uh, the one around uh, the methamphetamine. And, um, you know, it just, it's, it's continuous that you'll get some of these around the tragedies, but so much of it is, is around uh, just being pleasurable. The euphoric recall, and that just is one that we record. It is pleasurable, and I just want a little bit of that, uh, that feeling. Sure. And, well, and we got a, just a little bit of off-topic here, and we only have a couple minutes, about four minutes till the end. So uh, what else uh, is important to know about the five pieces to the puzzle of addiction? Well, I think it's a good point. And I think that, you know, uh, that just to understand it and not to beat oneself over it, I think that the patient becomes very intellectual of how could this have happened to me when did it happen to me? When did it start brewing? And the truth is, get on with life today. But if we are going to intellectualize over it, these pieces to the puzzle can unravel that when I did take a drug, it did something to me physically and fed into my emotionality and how I see and perceive life. And I think the beauty is, these are things that you learn in the 12-step groups that you can offset and have tools to work for you, and you don't have to keep beating up on yourself. Ed, where can people get more information on what you do if they'd like more information? Uh, thank you. I, they can certainly go to my website, which is stortymodel.com, and that is S-T-O-R-T-I model.com. Is there any final message you have for the listeners? We've got about two and a half minutes here. Well, I guess my message is there's so many brilliant recovering people. There's so many that do get well. Often in this profession, we look at the people that relapse or people that didn't make it and tried it one more time, and that when you have recovery, you've been given a rebirth in life. Why you, not the other guy, I don't know. But boy, you can make a difference in life. And if you find your passion and you get paid for your passion, you'll never have worked a day in your life. That's it. And um, when you're given the miracle uh, to, uh, to recovery, that the obsession is gone of using a drug, what a gift that's been given how wonderful is that? And then it's a matter of, uh, of uh, your dream. Your dream can be as simple as conceive it, believe it, and achieve it. If you want it, you've got it because you have uh, gifts. We all have gifts in us uh, to go on in life, have purpose in life. And if you can find that in your dream and live your dream, you'll go a long way in being a tremendous example to those out there that look at you and say, I'd like to be like that. It takes a lot of work, but it certainly is worth it, isn't it, Ed? Sure is. Yep, sure is. Th- thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jake. It was great, and that's about all the time we have today. Uh, please join us next week for another great show uh, when I... Uh, have John Shinholder, uh, president of the McShin Foundation, on the show next week. So thank you, have a great week, and enjoy life.
Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.